I invite you to turn this morning to 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 6, and 2 Corinthians 4 also, verses 1 to 18, two passages this morning. Uh, we're going to ask ourselves, what is the church? And as you find 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1, uh, I need to review the story of a church scandal in order for this sermon to make, make sense. It's going to take a second, so after you find it, settle in. I'm going to give you some context. It starts with a political scandal, and it ends with a sex scandal. Uh, so it started after a competent and godly ministry team planted a church in a popular urban area. This team was high energy, effective, culturally aware, persuasive, humble, and prayerful. And their church plants regularly went from groups of about 10 to 15 over the course of a couple years to a couple hundred, which is exactly what happened in this church. Now, like I said, these were competent and effective leaders. So when they left, they had new leaders, elders, pastors, deacons, trained, ready to go so that the church could have biblical instruction and living examples of godliness, which is actually what we're going to talk about next Sunday. Now, uh, that, though, was not the case this time. This time, after this team left and turned over leadership of the church to these officers that they had trained, it turned out that some of them weren't great choices. That happens sometimes. God knows the deep corners of the heart, and we don't. So a long story short, a power struggle began in the congregation. Some of the leaders used their position of authority as a platform to abuse people. And when people fought back, these leaders or those interested in keeping them in power, they had two ways of silencing their critics and intimidating others into silence. If they were poor, they would accuse them of stealing and they would sue them. And if they weren't easy legal targets, they would try to use the power of excommunication to bar them from the table and, tell, and try and exclude them from the life in the church. But not all the leaders were this way. Some of them fought back. But because of the nature of abuse, which often hides behind a seemingly godly veil of reasonableness, right? And because the church was hundreds of people, it was hard for folks to see behind the curtain and figure out who was telling the truth and who wasn't. And so the church started to split into factions. And as happens with factions, those groups started to not only have different perspectives on the abusers and on the issues, but also different ideas of how the church could go forward during this time without any kind of reconciliation process. And some of those ideas were genuinely godly. Uh, they were about reaching the lost. Some were based on genuinely godly concerns about just trying to keep the congregation together. And some of them weren't based on godly concerns at all. Some were simply about maintaining power. And then in the middle of all of this, a sex scandal breaks. And it's a prominent church leader from one of the powerful factions. And because of the situation, nothing happens. He goes on as normal, which means the scandal continues. And his wife and his children continue to suffer because of the scandal, which is ongoing. And the husband and the children of the woman he's committing adultery with, they suffer too. But this guy's faction, who are, again, church leaders, they tell these families, it's not really a problem. Other factions tell them different things. Some of them are godly, some aren't. So basically, the pain in these families who are suffering because of this scandal, that grows. Their wounds get deeper. And Jesus' name 
is attached to all of it. And if that wasn't bad enough, the outside world sees this too. It's a big church. And this church leader was also pretty well connected to the outside world. And so the outside community, they saw all of this either being done in Jesus' name or not being stopped in Jesus' name. And they are, of course, appalled by all of it. And as this happens, many Christians and some of the church leaders, they reach a point where they start asking publicly, like, why are we even in this church? Why even is there a church? And some start to leave. Some leave loudly, some leave quietly. But the political scandals, the abuse, the sex school scandals, they are killing this once vibrant congregation of hundreds of people. Do you know what I'm talking about yet? James McDonald, Jerry Falwell Jr., Ravi Zacharias, Roman Catholic church scandals, I could go on, right? No, I'm talking about Corinth. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything I just talked about is found mostly in 1 Corinthians. So why are we in 2 Corinthians? Well, because in 2 Corinthians, things get harder. A few years have passed since Paul and Timothy wrote 1 Corinthians those involved in the scandals, especially the abusive leaders, they've been removed from leadership. Some of them were excommunicated or otherwise disciplined, apparently. And the result of that discipline and excommunication was that at least one of them repented in exactly the ways we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He owned his sin and the hurt it caused. He demonstrated commitment to faithfully following Jesus and to treating those he sinned against righteously and to trying to repair the bridges that he broke down. And now, the church needs to welcome him back. After everything I just talked about, how is that possible? Why should the church, why should they do that? Well, as Paul and Timothy will talk about, the church should do that because she has received Jesus' ministry of reconciliation. And now, as Paul will say in chapter 5, which was our meditation verse this morning, she is a new creation. And her calling is to express her new creation by receiving this person who has sinned deeply and grievously against them all and against Jesus back into their fellowship in Jesus' name. This morning, we're going to answer the question, what is the church, this way. The church is a new creation community that, through Jesus, reconciles itself to repentant sinners who sin against them. The church is a new creation community that, through Jesus, reconciles itself to repentant sinners who sin against them. I'm going to say it one more time, because if you tune out, this is the part I want you to get. The church is the new creation community that, through Jesus, reconciles itself to repentant sinners who sin against them. Here's how we're going to look at that this morning. We're first going to look at the way that we want to welcome back, in quotes, repentant sinners who sin against us. Then we're going to look at uh, how Jesus calls us, in fact, to welcome them back. We'll see how Jesus calls us to speak new creation words. We'll see how Jesus calls us to new creation deeds. And then finally, how this new creation life actually affects us and the world around us. So we're going to read uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 
uh, 1 through 6, and then 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6. Let's hear now God's word. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And now flip over, please, with me to chapter 4. We'll start verse 1 and read through verse 15. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is, has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of our God, as all his words, will stand forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for this word, which you have inspired and preserved for us. Lord, we pray now. Uh, that your spirit would give us uh, ears to hear it, minds to understand it, and hearts to believe it, so that it might be written on our hearts, so that we can live out of the new creation life which it declares to us. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and the meditation of our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may all be pleasing now in your sight. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so the first thing we're going to think about is the way that we want to welcome back repentant sinners who've sinned against us. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. 
but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The context for this is Paul's declaration that they, meaning the church, have received from Jesus his ministry of reconciliation. And even more specifically, he says this in the context that this church is supposed to give that, that ministry of reconciliation to one of those people who had harmed them deeply, but is now seeking forgiveness and life from them in Christ. And that's chapters 1 and 2 of 2 Corinthians. Now, remember what I had said about this congregation's past experiences with him and those like him. Right? Factions that used laws, lies and lawsuits and false excommunications to maintain power and to protect themselves from accountability. Imagine being someone who had been sued by him and who'd maybe spent time as a debt slave because of that, because they were suing poor people, and that's how poor people paid their debts. They became slaves. Imagine if it was someone who was slandered, and who was run out of the church for a time and was told, Jesus doesn't love you because you told us we can't act this way. Imagine being the spouse or the children of one of those family members who had been involved in this sex scandal. In fact, I think thinking about these lines can uh, be really helpful in understanding what Paul is talking about in verses 8 through 10. When Paul says in verse 8, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Right, when Paul says that, I don't think anymore that he's talking in the first instance about suffering because of those outside of the church. I think he's talking about suffering because of those inside the church and because of what the ministry of reconciliation means when you're in the body. Afflicted because of the pain involved in treating an abuser, even a repentant one, with anything like kindness. Perplexed, which means deeply confused, kids. So perplexed because of the confusion at having to reconcile yourself to someone who used the court and the church to hurt you. Or maybe perplexed at watching the people, Paul and Timothy, who helped you get out of that spiritual abuse, spiritually abusive position, now turn and help this abuser. And is he really repentant? Right, find a way back into the church. That's confusing. Persecuted, because people are trying to remove you from a position of ministry or reject your position of ministry, like Paul and Timothy, because you're one of the people who is calling on the church to show the reconciling grace of Jesus to this person. Struck down, maybe, because reconciliation brings everything back to you again, and you just aren't sure that you can emotionally and spiritually take it anymore. Jesus understands all of this. He understands the difficulty of welcoming traitors back into his band of disciples, Peter. He understands the difficulty of welcoming abusive persecutors back into his church, Paul. Just I've been reading Acts recently. Just read Acts, and you'll see the amount of work that Jesus had to put in to reconcile Paul to his church family. Two visions— Ministry, 
miles and miles away from the church that he abandoned, groups of disciples coming with him to Jerusalem, multiple testimonies. Jesus understands the difficulty and the hardship. Jesus understands what it means to have to sacrifice yourself to the point of death, carrying around in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Christ can be manifested in and through himself and his people. It's why we're not crushed. It's why we're not driven to despair. It's why we know we're not forsaken or destroyed, because Jesus understands and he is with us in all of these kinds of difficult things that he tells us we need to do as his new creation people. But to return to the point of 4 verse 2, Jesus also understands that sometimes we don't respond to that difficulty well. So when Paul talks about rejecting disgraceful and underhanded ways and practicing cunning, he's talking about what we would today call power politics or real politics, which just means I will do whatever works to get what I want. And in this case, what I want is safety from you. And probably also for you to hurt as much as you hurt me. In other words, we want to stay divided from them, distant from them, away from them, because in that division, in that distance created uh, by rejection and pain, we feel safe. They can't get to me, they can't hurt to me, and they, des- they can't hurt me, and they deserve it. But Jesus wants us to understand that that feeling of distance isn't safety at all, because that distance represents Satan's goals for us, not Jesus's. So not only does Paul go on to talk about the God of this world, but you notice in verse 2 he uses the word cunning, which takes us back to Satan in the garden, where Satan is the most crafty or cunning. It's the same word of all the creatures. Where Satan uses his skills and his strength to put a wedge between Eve and Adam, between Adam and Eve and God to create division and distance through pain and through suffering. And then Paul continues that allusion back when he talks about tampering with God's word in the very same breath. Did God really say? Satan began. Did God really say I have to love this kind of enemy? Did God really say that I need to forgive as I've been forgiven when the offenses of the I was a debt slave? Did God really say that I need to seek reconciliation with those who repent and seek it from me? Is that really what God wants? Paul is saying that this way of living is not the way of Jesus. Power politics won't get you the experience of the new creation because the new creation didn't come through power. It came to us through humble, loving, reconciling words and deeds of Jesus. Which brings us to our second point, which is Jesus calls us to speak new creation words. So back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and by the way, you can see it's hard just to pick sections to preach on for a sermon like this because this is a pastoral letter. You're not teaching a Sunday school. You're trying to get people to understand that you know how they feel, you feel their feels, and you're trying to get them to go where they need to go. So it takes a little bit of jumping around. But back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Paul moves from talking about needing to reconcile themselves to this individual to talking about the contrast between letters of recommendation 
and the hearts of the Corinthian church, which are their letters, Paul says. And then in the next verses, which we didn't read, the words of the God's covenant with Moses and then the words of God's new covenant in Jesus. So it's all about words and letters and writing. Here's how it's all connected. It's clear that in response to their call to reconcile themselves to this person who had hurt them, some in the Corinthian church were basically saying, they have no right to ask us to do this. They don't know what they're talking about. They've never suffered like this. They don't know what they're asking us to do. And I think you can see this because Paul will go on to talk at the end of a letter about his own suffering at the hands of those who would eventually join the church, people who tried to stone him to death, send him off to jail, excommunicate him from his people. It's also why I think he begins a letter talking about how he suffered through the gospel and how he suffered so much for the gospel that he despaired of life itself but learned to trust in God through all of it. And just to say this, I think the Corinthians' response is understandable. Right? The Corinthians are afraid, and maybe they're also angry. Right? After all, some of these leaders who had abused them appear to have been installed by Paul and Timothy. And when we face abuse, we usually look at the people who brought them into our lives and we say, you should have known. It's your fault. You should have been able to see it. There's clearly a distrust of Paul and Timothy. There's a distrust of their request, which is why Paul says in 3 verse 1, do we really need a letter of recommendation? Do we really need people to tell you that the ministry of reconciliation that Jesus has given to us is effective? And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, basically, my friends, you know the ministry of reconciliation that we are calling you to show is effective because you received it and it affected you. The change in your hearts that you experienced when we brought the gospel of Jesus to you. The change of life that you experienced as we taught you how to follow Jesus, that's all the letter that we should need. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You know that the ministry of reconciliation is effective and changes lives because you experienced it. You experienced it in your own forgiveness. You experienced it in the way that Jesus' ministry rooted out the scandals and the sins and started to create a hedge of protection around you and the church. You've experienced the way, too, that Jesus has brought and has been bringing healing to you through all of this tragedy and suffering, which means that you should know that the ministry of reconciliation we're telling you to give to this person who sinned against you, which is hard, is still the right thing to do because you experientially know through your lived lives with Jesus that the joy and the peace and the fellowship of new creation life with Christ lies within that ministry and at the end of that ministry which is why you need to speak Jesus' words of reconciliation and welcome and forgiveness, even to this guy. And that's the main contrast that Paul is actually drawing between the covenant with Moses and the new covenant with Jesus in the following verses. Paul's main point there, if you were to read it, 
is that the words written on stone are not sufficient to permanently bring the light of Christ's reconciling glory to sinners who need them. No, those words need to be written on the heart, and they need to be spoken by those who have them written on their heart to other people. Because when those words are received, the light of Christ's reconciling glory is written on your heart, and it shines in your life, and it brings you peace. And Paul is saying that's what happened to you. It's the ministry you received from Jesus, and it's the ministry Jesus is asking you to express now to this person in his name. But not only words, deeds too. So back in chapter 4, in verse 6, we read these beautiful words. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If I ever got a Bible verse tattooed on me, it would be this one. Um, and Isaiah 43, 1 through 2. Uh, my two favorites. In Genesis 1, we, we read that before God created, the earth was darkness, formlessness, and void. And then those words become a metaphor throughout the Bible for the effects of sin. Sin brings darkness and it brings chaos. It undoes the beauty of creation. It creates disorder and it brings pain and death. And they experience that as a church. And just like in Genesis, only Jesus' creative power and word is sufficient to overwhelm the dark, formless void of sin and bring life that shines in it and overwhelms it and brings something new. Paul is talking to a church which is broken by scandal. It's full of distrust and anger and pain. And he's speaking to leaders who are trying to put the pieces back together and who are now faced with the task of welcoming back someone responsible for this pain and anger and brokenness. Again, maybe they were sued. Maybe they were threatened with excommunication, lied about. They're hurt. Others are hurt. Certainly members in the church experienced this treatment from this person and the scandalizers' families as well. And even though this person is repenting and demonstrating a commitment to change and to follow Jesus, all of this darkness, understandably, presses down on all of them. Here God says, Remember, the same Jesus who called light out of darkness in Genesis 1 is now in Jesus, calling the light of reconciliation out of the darkness of our lives. Because we are new creations. But we're new creations housed in the old fallen creation. Verse 7, this is beautiful. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Us being jars of clay is clearly a reference to us being formed from the dust of the earth in Genesis 1, but now fallen, right, breakable. By putting all of this together, I think we can hear Paul say that as we express the reconciling work of Jesus in our fallen, messy lives, in reliance on his grace, the light of Jesus' new creation power shines in us, in through us, in a dark world, 
and into the darkness of sin in other people's lives. And since the emphasis is on jars of clay, right, our bodies, we can also hear Paul say that as we embody this ministry, like Jesus did in his incarnation, as we embrace those repentant sinners who harmed us, when our hands serve them, when our feet walk with them, when our ears listen to them, when we learn how to embrace them again in Jesus' name, the light of Jesus' new creation glory shines through us into the darkness of their lives and they experience a fresh taste of Jesus' grace. And it doesn't just shine there, does it? It also shines in a world where this is not the norm. What does the rest of the world do to those who sin against them, even if they repent? They keep punishing them. They're only ever identified by their big sin, right? Once a bully, always a bully. He's a liar. Insert your favorite sin here. They're deplatformed, they're canceled, and they can't get their spot back in society unless they join a group that hates the person that they've harmed, which only justifies the sin rather than calling for repentance and reconciliation. That's the old fallen creation, and it's the way of the devil. The church is the new. The church is the place where the new creation power of Jesus is expressed and where it gets to be experienced again and again and again as we express this new creation reconciliation of Jesus to those who repent and follow him. In fact, just so you can hear this, Paul wants the church to seek this reconciliation because, as he says in chapter 1, verse 15, he wants them to have a second experience of grace. Or as we would say, maybe we would translate it this way for like the street edition, a fresh experience of grace. Not the street edition, the hipster edition, a fresh experience of grace. That's what he's asking for. You need new grace. You need a new experience of this in your lives. Okay, because that grace is unusual and powerful, because it's not of this world, we get then these powerful words in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 4, where he says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. And by the way, that quote there, which I know comes out of nowhere, that's from Psalm 116, which is about trusting Jesus to be faithful even when it's hard to follow him. We believed in Jesus. We spoke these words of trust to one another in Jesus, but we didn't. We weren't sure if Jesus was going to come through. We tried anyway, and we found him to be faithful. That's Psalm 116. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Here's the point. As the church follows Jesus' ministry of reconciliation, not only does it give us a second experience of grace, and the offender who's seeking reconciliation a second experience of grace, it gives the world a first experience of grace. My friends, when we live our lives together in ways that look like power politics that refuses to express Jesus' reconciliation to repentant sinners, 
even repentant sinners who've hurt us deeply, the world sees us as just another branch of the same company, Satan Incorporated. But when we live out of Jesus' ministry of reconciliation, the world sees us for what we are, for what Jesus has made us to be, and for what we are meant to be, a window into the new creation. And not just a window, but a door that welcomes sinners who repent and trust in Jesus into this fellowship with Christ. That brings me finally to this brief concluding point. You can see in Paul's letters a tension between what the church is and what the church chooses to be. The church is a new creation, but because we live in the old creation, we can choose to live contrary to our new nature. If we want to be both a window and a door for the world to experience Jesus' grace, if we want to be a place where we get to experience Jesus' grace in fresh ways, we need to make the same choice that Paul and Timothy made to renounce the power politics of this world, to renounce the pretend safety of distance and division, and to instead embrace, in Jesus' name and by his power, the sacrificial, humble, loving, reconciling new creation lives that Jesus has given to us. And this isn't always easy. It can bring persecution, as we saw even from the church. It can perplex us. It can bring us, bring us affliction. But in all these things, as Paul says in Romans, we are already more than conquerors. Because Jesus is with us. And as Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19, which is probably the third verse I would get tattooed on my arm somewhere, in Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen. And as we follow Jesus in giving words and deeds of reconciliation to those who have sinned against us, Jesus gives a yes and amen to his promise to express his new creation life in us, to make it shine through us. He says yes and amen to his promise to give us a fresh experience of his grace, to draw us even just a little more closer he gives a yes and amen to his promise that the world will see him through us and taste and see how good and pleasant it is to follow Jesus. So let's give ourselves to speaking words and performing actions of reconciliation because we are Jesus' new creation community that through Jesus reconciles ourselves to repentant sinners who sin against us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have received Jesus' ministry of reconciliation and that because of him we are a new creation. Uh, please help us, Father, through your Holy Spirit as your new creations to express that ministry together by being reconciled to those who sin against us so that the light of Jesus would shine in us and that the world would see it and so that we would have a fresh experience of Jesus' grace. In whose name we pray, amen.